The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. Um, there's been a series of talks now on Jack Kornfield's new book, The Wise Heart, and we're looking right now at chapter, chapter 4. It's entitled, The Colorings of Consciousness. Now that, and even though it, in a way it makes so much sense, and it, we probably even feel already quite skilled at seeing different states of mind. But the fact is, if we're really honest with ourselves, when we do see the different states of mind, like everybody in the room has probably noticed the times when you're angry or times when you're hopeful or times when you're bored or times when you have a lot of doubt, that usually when we do see mind states, we're seeing them colored by particular mind states. So it's not really seeing the mind state clearly for what it is. So, so much of the work in Buddhism, the path the Buddha laid out, is understanding um, the proximate cause. Like in order to have insight and actually see clearly a particular mind state, we need the precondition. And what's the precondition to seeing mind states? Well, we need a mind that's clear enough, subtle enough to see a mind state without being confused by a mind state. It's like when we notice that, that we're irritable, we're seeing the irritation through the lens of irritation. So it may seem like we're seeing it clearly, but we're not really seeing it clearly. That's why our mind states always feel so justified. <laughs> because we get lost, we get seduced by the mind state itself. So the um, sort of the proximate cause to having insight, to really seeing the mind and mind states as they are, is to develop some amount of calm or concentration or what we often call samadhi. So like in the instructions tonight, the first suggestion was just to recognize the space of the present moment. Sometimes in Buddhist practice we call this the working ground. Like we, it's the first cause for doing good practice. We have to have a sense of the working ground. The working ground is the present moment. If we're lost in our ideas about the present moment, we're not capable of doing any work, any good practice. We have to find ourselves aware of the present moment. We have to land in the space of the present moment, not be distracted by our thoughts about things. And then the next step, then, is to cultivate a continuity of mindful attention. That's what transforms our distracted, fragmented, superficial way of being to a deep, resonant, clear way of being. And so we take something like the breath moving in the body, and we practice noticing, being aware 
uh, for example, the air touching the nostrils as the breath is going in, and then the air touching the nostrils as the breath is going out. And it's not enough just to notice that in one moment, like just the beginning of an in-breath. But if we can sustain the attention, so we're knowing that touching experience, knowing it, knowing it, knowing it, knowing it, knowing it, and then knowing it, knowing it, knowing it, knowing it, knowing it. Well, we've broken the cycle, the habit of fragmentation, of distraction. Now we have what we call a continuity of mindfulness, an unbroken knowing of the present moment. And immediately, this is not something you have to wait years to experience. Everybody in this room is capable of experiencing the transformation between our ordinary state of mind and the state of mind when there's some continuity of mindfulness. It's really, in a sense, a different reality. I mean, not, not like taking hallucinogenic drugs or things like that. But you'll notice, if you really pay attention, you'll notice it's a different way of being to have some continuity of mindfulness versus a scattered, dispersed, fragmented mind. Doing little this and then that and that, and not really sinking in, not really touching, connecting, knowing things as they are. Some of the qualities that immediately begin to develop, even after a few moments of continuity, the non-fragmentation of attention. So the, the attention isn't wavering. Now remember, when we're being mindful of the in-breath, it's not the same object, is it? Because the beginning of the in-breath isn't the same object of the, of the, as the next moment of the in-breath. So it's not about we're knowing the same thing over and over again, because nothing lasts long. Everything is an unfolding process. So the continuity is really the continuity of the present moment, not the continuity of the object. Because the in-breath, if we're really awake, knowing the in-breath, it's always changing. The beginning is different than the middle of the in-breath, and the middle of the in-breath is different than the experience of the end of the in-breath. And then there's that little gap before the out-breath begins. And that's different than the in-breath or the out-breath. And then the beginning of the out-breath is what it is, and it's different than the middle of the out-breath, and on and on like that. So you see that the real work of mindfulness is this continuity. And that by that I mean we have to, the mind has to show up over and over and over again. What we really like, what we really want as a conventional human being, we just want to do our work and be done with it, right? But that's, there's never that in mindfulness practice. It's just the opposite. So what we're cultivating a taste for is the ongoingness of the practice, is that, that it never ends. We're mindful, 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 mindful. It has to be in that continuity. That's what transforms the mind. Now, when we can do that, when we inspire the mind enough, have enough confidence, you know, you hear a rousing dharma talk, or you read a good book, or you just, read in, with your own reflection, you get inspired to do that particular work. It's a very particular kind of work. It's not like a muscular work with your mind, like I'm really going to be continuous. It's an interest. The mind gets interested in the present moment 
to such a degree that it's not forgetting the present moment. That's our problem. We're present, and then we think getting lost in thought is more relevant than the continuity of that present moment attention. More than any other thing, what deludes us more than any other thing is, and we don't think it out loud, but unconsciously we think the present moment isn't relevant. What I'm thinking, this sort of stream of conscious, the stream of uh, thoughts and ideas, that's relevant. But not, oh, it's like this now. Not that present moment awareness. That just doesn't seem that important. It's amazing how, I mean, it's really shocking when you catch yourself, how dismissive we are of the present moment when it's the only thing we have. I'm not kidding. You know, 90, 95, 99% of the time, we are completely dismissive of the present moment and interested in our you know, thoughts about the past or thoughts about the future, but we really don't feel like this present moment recognition that the body's like this or the mind is like this, we just, it just doesn't seem relevant, which is, I mean, just saying it, it just sounds absurd. How could the present moment not be relevant? But just try to have a continuity of present moment awareness, and you'll see that this is in fact the case. We are not in the habit of being aware of the present moment, moment by moment, for any stretch of time. And when we do, things really begin to change fast. Because it's the unbroken awareness of the present moment that leads to what we call samadhi. It's a unification of the mind. We're so used to the mind being ununified, fragmented, distracted, and superficial. It's just we take it as our normal, the natural state of mind, but it isn't. We actually work pretty hard at maintaining our unnatural state of mind, you know, the fragmented, distracted, superficial (coughs) state of mind, states of mind. But when we do get uh, some continuity, the mind, what's reflected in the mind is a sense of quietness and calm, and that unification has the flavor flavor of wholeness. It's like a healing. The fragmentation of the mind, the scatteredness and the you know, the here and there-ness of the mind, that gets healed. And there's a real sense of wholeness. Because every moment when when my mind is aware of the present moment, Like you can just try now, when you're aware of this is how it is now, present moment awareness by its very nature is inclusive. It isn't fragmenting. It isn't this and that. Like when I'm aware, oh, it's like this. If I want to discriminate and recognize, well, Mike's over there and Eric's over here, and that's that's a different uh, mental activity than present moment awareness. So present moment awareness, we can only be, it's like you can't take a partial gulp of the present moment. Like if we're aware of the present moment, we're aware of it as a whole. It's not fragmented. You know, of sound and sight, it's just this. Now it doesn't mean that like the particular sound may be predominant. But even though I'm like, in a sense, uh, highly attuned to a particular sound in a moment of mindfulness, 
I haven't excluded all of the other aspects of the present moment. So it has this flavor. The con- when we get a continuity of mindfulness, it has this strong flavor of inclusivity or wholeness. You know, words aren't quite good here in terms of. But you'll when you when you play with this, when you cultivate a continuity, you'll get what I'm talking about. Now, the reason I'm making this point is this particular chapter, Jack Kornfield's talking about the colorings of consciousness, the mind states that we're living under the influence of. Remember last week, if you were here, I talked about this map, the Buddha called the all. Right? It's sort of a presumptuous title of this map of our mind, the all. And we have this mechanistic part of the mind, which is we have these little sensory organs, like an eyeball, and we have visual experience. And just like we, as a human being, we can invent, make a camera that's sensitive to, to light and shape and color, right? Well, we have one of those little devices. But that sensitivity, you know, having an eye that's sensitive to shape and color, it needs this other thing, which we call consciousness. In a way, it allows, it, it allows for some kind of ignition where the sensitive organ sees the object and something is ignited, like a moment of awareness of sight. I don't think that, I don't know if that happens with a camera, you know, that sort of sentient quality, like the camera knowing, oh, I'm seeing this shape and form. But that sort of mechanistic side of it, you know, the sensory organ, seeing the object, and the consciousness, what illuminates that experience, is under the influence of the mind state, you know, what we call the mind state. So if I'm in a particularly foul mood, then having that sensory experience, the eye seeing an object, it being illuminated by consciousness, it's gonna, the experience is going to be this way. And if I'm under another mood or have a different mind state predominating in the mind, then the experience is going to be different. You know, you can see a bright sunny day on a cold January morning, and with one particular mind state, you have this experience, and with another mind state, it will be a hellish experience. So mind states really matter. And in a way, the mind states through which we're viewing, experiencing life, reality, is in a way more important than the particular objects that are being known through the eyes, through the smell, through the tasting, the touching, the thinking. The particular view or colorings of the mind is relevant. But, like I mentioned at the beginning, it's not so easy for us to have, to have much present moment awareness of these mind states. And even when we do, we, turn, we tend to misunderstand them because we don't have samadhi. We don't have that simple, clear, unified presence that can understand, that can see a mind state without being confused by it. In our normal states of mind, when we see a mind state, we're immediately confused by it. By, we take it personally. Like when I'm irritable or angry or joyful or grateful or happy, and I notice it, First of all, we normally don't notice those states, but when we do notice that, we immediately 
in a sense, it's as if we say, yeah, that's how I'm feeling. But that's a huge assumption. You know, when we're irritable and we say, oh yeah, I'm just irritable. We immediately take it personally instead of seeing it, the irritable state of mind, that particular coloring in the mind is something that's being known here. Like one of the really interesting states of mind to learn not to be confused by is the state of confusion. It's possible to be really clear that the mind is fuzzy, that the mind is confused, the mind's heavy or dull, without being confused by the dullness or the fuzziness of the mind. But isn't it true normally for us when we're confused, when the state of mind is confusion or dullness, that we immediately, in a sense, assume, well, that's just how it is. I, that's, I am confused now. I am dull now. But it doesn't have to be that way. So the, the first step, of course, is we need to be able to see things as they are. And what allows us to see things as they are? The equanimity that arises with samadhi practice. We're, we have to have some continuity of mindfulness. That, in a sense, I think it's a good way of talking about it. It heals the mind. It heals, heals the fragmentation of the mind, the scatteredness and superficiality of the mind. And then the mind is capable of actually seeing things as they are. Because when we have some samadhi, some of that wonderful, calm, whole, simple presence, then the mind doesn't really have any agenda. It's not putting a spin on anything. It's in a, it can be just receptive. And it will notice the different mind states, subtle and obvious mind states, as for what they are. They're just different colorings of the mind. Oh, the mind is like this. The view or the particular coloring, it's just this. And that's when our whole practice really begins to open up. For those who are relatively new, you may not get this, but it's not just, we're not doing this practice of mindfulness in order to be mindful. We're doing it in order to have insight. We want to understand the mind or understand the nature of the mind in ways we haven't yet understood. So the Buddha calls it a path of awakening. It's probably a better word than enlightenment. You know, the early British translators translated the word Bodhi, which is the same root as the word Buddha. You know, it means the one who has awakened. Um, so Bodhi means to awaken. They translate it as enlightenment. But really, it's more of a waking up. We're waking up. We're seeing things we haven't seen before. We're having insight. And so we're having insight that there are mind states, some subtle, some not subtle, some that are unskillful, by unskillful meaning that the mind state is, when we see it in a moment of mindfulness, we experience it as being contracting or heavy and leading to heavy contracted states. So in that moment, it's already heavy and contracted, narrow, and it leads, it tends to replicate itself so that the next moment will also feel contracted narrow, heavy. And wholesome states of mind are simply states of mind that have the flavor of release as opposed to contraction. 
openness as opposed to narrowness, freedom as opposed to weight, you know, the freedom from the weight. So um, when we cultivate the continuity of mindfulness, the mind, in a sense, is healed. It's not fragmented. It's stable. It's clear. And the continuity means that the mind is understanding Dhamma, the way it is. Because you can't really understand the way it is unless there's continuity. See, when we, when, even if we have a moment of mindfulness, we've taken a snapshot but the mind will immediately con- convert that snapshot, oh, I'm feeling this, I'm thinking this, I'm seeing this, into a concept. But when we get a continuity of, a, of seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting or thinking, so we're knowing, oh, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, then what becomes unavoidably true? Reality is a process. It isn't a thing. It's a process. It's a dynamic process. It's alive. More than anything, reality, or what in Buddhism we call Dhamma, the way it is, it's a process. And if we've, if we've missed that, we've missed the whole boat. It's like we're not really aware. We're not really connecting with reality. We're just connecting with our thoughts about things. And it's very deceptive. We can have very refined thoughts about things. Like, we can have the thought, everything's a process, a changing process. And then, and that thought can be so seductive that as I'm thinking that I'm paying attention, I'm really thinking in a subtle way about how everything's changing and a changing process. But that's different than experiencing directly that seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking isn't a thing. Life isn't a thing. It isn't a noun. It's a process. The process that has no beginning and end. You know, the interesting thing about a process is it can't really be grasped, can it? Like if we're going from here to there, there's really no landing. Like, oh, this is how it is. So you see why emptiness Sunata is the Pali word, or anatta, the not self. You see why like our notion of who we are is very much a thing, a static thing. But when we open to experience, the experience of our mind states, the experience of sensation, we don't find a thing. We find process, a changing process. So when we develop a continuity of attention, There's a healing, there's a simple, quiet, unified state. Because it's pleasant, samadhi or this continuity of mindfulness is pleasant, the mind has less and less agendas because it's feeling content. So it's able to see things. It's able to sort of open this door, walk through, and start to experience life as a changing process. Whatever we look at, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, or thoughts, are seen as they actually are, as a changing, unfolding, conditional process, meaning it's a lawful unfolding of sound, smell, taste, touch, sights, sounds, if I didn't say that, and thoughts. It's a a lawful, conditional, ever-changing process. And then we start to see that 
mind states are these are part of this process, but they have a self-replicating nature. You know, so it's not like I'm irritable and it's a static thing. But part of being irritable, part of any mind state, wholesome, you know, mind states that tend to release and free up the mind, and unwholesome states of mind, mind states that tend to constrict the mind. Both of these mind states tend to be self-replicating, reproducing themselves. And so they, it can feel like when I'm irritable, when I'm angry, when I'm lonely, when I'm sad, or one of the positive wholesome states, it can feel like, well, that's really who I am, like it's a static thing. But when we start to be able to observe mind states as a process, we see that replication happening. We see how ephemeral they actually are. It's like sadness isn't a set thing. We have to keep reproducing it, replicating it, in order to be sad in the next moment. It may be true that in this moment I'm seeing life through this lens of sadness. But if I'm going to be sad in the next moment, literally, quite literally, the mind has to replicate the experience of being sad and then see its experience through that lens again. It's a lot of work. And the more we see mind states, wholesome, even wholesome mind states, the more we recognize the great burden of having to be consistent to who we think we are in that moment. I mean, it seems so consistent, but actually, we're not consistent. You know, we'll be joyful, joyful, and then someone will cut us off. And then we think we have to be upset. So we'll work hard at replicating the feeling of being upset until we get distracted and we remember something that makes us happy, you know? And then we'll think we have to be happy because of this thing we're remembering. And we, if we could really track our mind states, and this is really our homework, we're so all over the place, it really breaks apart the notion that we're consistent, you know, that we're one thing. We're just all over the place. Even if you're like mostly one day depressed or upset, if you really look, you're not just upset, 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 upset all the way through, moment by moment. But we tend to dismiss things that uh, insult our sense of continuity and don't make sense. So, for example, when you are in, in a funk, it's really good to highlight moments of feeling light or happy because it challenges this sense of self, I am upset, I'm in a funk. Or when you're really rosy, rosy, then it's good to see times when your heart's really touched and feels sad, feels hurt. To break apart the static notion that we can live in, live with. One of the main teachings in the Buddha's talk on mindfulness, there's a famous talk he gave, one of the most famous discourses called the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, where he taught about being mindful of the five physical senses, being mindful of the feeling tone, the pleasantness and unpleasantness, mindful of the colorings of the mind. This is the third uh, foundation of mindfulness. And he says, um, and how practitioners does one in regard to the mind abide contemplating the mind? 
Here one knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. One knows a great mind or an expanded mind to be expanded, and a narrow mind to be narrow. One knows a surpassable mind to be surpassable and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. One knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. One knows a liberated mind to be liberated and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. Now it's interesting, he doesn't talk about judging the different state of mind, states of mind that we you know, move through, but simply to know. And this is the important thing. So when we become interested in waking up to the mind, using the capacity we have to see things clearly to get interested in the mind, you know, there are a lot of interesting things to direct mindfulness to. But the Buddha didn't teach a path of, you know, bringing mindfulness to this and to that. He, you know, he emphasized developing the skill of being mindful, that continuity of present moment attention that I talked about, in order to take it and direct it toward the mind itself, present moment unfolding of the mind itself, using the mind to know the mind. Even though there are a lot of interesting things and relatively wholesome things to direct that powerful mindful attention to, you could study how people get cancer and how you can prevent it or cure it. You could study how to become a really good partner to your partner or cultivate your garden in a really subtle, beautiful way. All of those things would be really you know, wholesome, relatively wholesome things to devote yourself to. But the most important, most wholesome thing to devote mindfulness to is understanding the mind, not judging the mind not judging when we have unwholesome states or not getting attached to the beautiful, wholesome states of mind. Because then we're just setting in motion more of the same thing. It's so amazing how awareness is enough. Just being aware that there are mind states that come and go, and this particular mind state is unwholesome in the sense that it's constricted, it's heavy, and it leads to heavy states. Or this particular mind state is wholesome in the sense that it's, it free, it's freeing itself up. It's opening the mind or the heart up. It leads to expanded, free states of mind or states of experience. That's all we have to do. We just need to be aware. Because when there's awareness, restricted, constricted states of mind fall away. The image, the... Jack Kornfield uses in this chapter, I might have mentioned it last Sunday, uh, just as when sunlight hits fog, you know, fog, of course, is just little droplets of water, right, suspended in the air. And you know how it is. You can have fog early in the morning, and then the sun comes out, especially if you live like Jack Kornfield does in the Bay Area in San Francisco or outside of San Francisco, where there's a lot of fog, you know, a lot of fog in the morning, and some mornings... The sun is strong enough and it burns off 
the fog quite early, sometimes not until the end of the day, sometimes not at all. But in any case, on some level, you know, maybe just at the top of the fog, the sunlight is hitting the droplets, and there's a process of evaporation, or the, the fog disappears. Now notice that in your own mind. When you bring that continuity of mindfulness, that simple, unified, clear, non-judging presence to mind states, to anything, but in particular to mind states, you'll see that unwholesome, restricted, constricted states of mind fall apart. Just try to maintain an angry state of mind by being mindful of it. Now, you can sustain it, you can cause it to replicate itself by getting attached, identified to the anger. But if you're mindful, if you're just feeling aware, clear, anger is like this, it's impossible to maintain anger for any great length of time. Now, sometimes anger has a lot of momentum and it won't disappear immediately. But sometimes the mindfulness will be strong enough or the state of anger will be weak enough that as the first moment of being mindful of it, the anger, in a sense, evaporates. It disappears. It was there, and now it literally cannot be found in the mind. I'm sure you've experienced that sometimes. Now, the interesting thing about wholesome states of mind, when, and just check this out in your own experience, when you, like, you're just feeling a natural kind of generosity. You do something nice, and it feels really good. And so you do another thing that's nice, you know? Whatever it is, listening to somebody, helping somebody, being patient, letting somebody in on the highway. And, and you're just mindful of that expanded state of heart or mind. And you're just aware of it. You're not attached to it. You're not getting identified. Oh, I'm the nice guy. I wonder how else I could be nice. I wonder if people are noticing. You're just aware of that nice, expanded feeling without being confused by the nice, expanded feeling, light, buoyant feeling. Just aware of it. You'll see that it opens up more and more. It actually becomes more resonant, stronger. So this is a basic principle in practice that you can check out for yourselves. The continuity of attention, mindfulness of mind states, when they're unwholesome, they tend to fall apart. When they're wholesome, they tend to open up. They tend to expand. That's one of the ways you can know whether the mind state, the coloring in the mind, is in the wholesome direction or the unwholesome direction. And this part of this path is this purification of the mind. But we don't want to get, we don't want to turn it in to this big ego project because then we're not practicing. Then we're identified to being the one who wants to have a beautiful mind, only beautiful mind states, and who's afraid of unwholesome mind states. Instead, we just want to do the practice, develop a continuity of mindful attention, and then with that relative calm, relative equanimity, relative stability of that mind state, get interested in the mind states that come and go, wholesome and unwholesome, just keep watching. And when you're recognizing a mind state as unwholesome, then just observe it without fear, without attachment, without identification. And notice if it gets weaker, less resonant, less seductive, 
more porous. And when you are mindful of a wholesome state of mind, notice whether it seems to be become more universal or boundless, more resonant. Like a, like a wholesome mind state ultimately take the shape of the mind itself. So there's now we're talking about the mind with a capital M as opposed to a mind state that's coloring the mind with a capital M, right? So we have the space, whatever this is, right? The space of awareness is right now, it gets colored. We have objects that are arising in the space of the here and now, and that experience of knowing different objects is being colored by our states of mind. Now, wholesome states of mind begin to expand, and they become synonymous, in a way, with the mind itself with a capital M. And this is why in Buddhism we talk about the unconditioned or emptiness. It's like the space of the mind, wisdom and love in the end aren't a thing, you know, like this is love or this is what wisdom is. It's really the absence of constriction. The absence of coloring is what love and wisdom actually is. Like to really be in an experience of love is really more about the absence of separation than about I'm loving you, I'm being intimate with you, you know, I'm connecting with you. When we really care about something, it's not something we're actually doing. It's just the nature of non-separation. Compassion isn't something special. It's just the absence of feeling separate, feeling apart, feeling disconnected. And so this is why that uh, the mindfulness of wholesome states really is the process of awakening. And more than anything, you know, as a human being, we should be taught this in kindergarten. Our first and foremost responsibility as a human being is to understand wholesome states of mind and how to support them and how to, in a sense, to set them free, to allow them to express their empty, expanded nature to drop sort of all restrictions. So I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. We'll move on to Chapter 5 next week. So this will be the last week uh, on this particular subject. Of course, we'll keep revisiting this in, from different angles. But it would be nice to hear from people your own experience, seeing your mind states, how you've, you've worked with them, what's the problematic questions you have about the talk, anything that seems relevant. So please say your name if you decide to speak up. What comes to mind? Yeah.
there's like that kind of resistance. I don't know if you can go away with that. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it doesn't go away either. Because, uh, you know, that continuity of mindfulness, I said it's surprisingly powerful when you when you start getting some continuity. And it really changes things. And I talked about it just in terms of the positive side. You know, there's more stability, more clarity, sense of contentment, sense of equanimity. But the other side of that is there's a, a profound sensitivity. It, it literally amplifies everything. It's not that things are actually bigger, but the mind is more clear, more sensitive, so everything seems bigger. So when we see the movement of mind states, the movement of emotion, it's really powerful. I mean, a lot of the reasons people live the way they live, drinking, distraction, you know, all the different ways people dull their minds, is it's intense being a sensitive creature in this kind of world, given the sort of uh, painful nature of our mind states and emotions, it's it seems like a relevant strategy to dull out, you know, to to be to use heavy-duty suppressants <laughs> to keep the mind clouded, distracted, dull. So when we start to clean up our act and cultivate clarity, it's shocking. Being a sensitive human being is shocking because there is so much, first just the intensity of the unfolding stream of experience, the constant impingement, right? So we're sensitive in these six ways. We see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, and we're also sensitive to the flow of thought. And it never ends. And even when we go to sleep in dream, it's like constant impingement in these different sense gates. And that's intense. To be really mindful moment by moment, this is intense. But the, the important thing about that intensity, that sensitivity, is it provokes the deepening of wisdom. Because where is the understanding, where is the heart or mind, now again with the capital H or capital M, that isn't afraid of this constant impingement, this constant... Uh, flow of experience that nobody's in control of. What mind, heart, can just allow that to be the way that it is? So there is a real edge, like you you described, of the deepening of sensitivity and feeling a little or even a lot overwhelmed by it. But it just means that wisdom hasn't caught up to the, to the increasing sensitivity. So. The only real shift in the instruction is to emphasize wisdom more than the deepening of sensitivity or the increasing of sensitivity. So instead of emphasizing concentration right now, if if it's feeling a little overwhelming, spend more time reflecting on some of the teachings, including even memorizing, like like memorizing a few things about how everything is phenomena coming and going. It's amazing how impermanence can really help you deal with the intensity of exposure. Because knowing that everything comes and goes allows you to relax when things are coming head on and it seems intense. Because we can handle stuff if we know it's going to go away. But if we have the thought, this is never going to go away, we start to panic. And when we panic, we lose our samadhi. And then 
the objects feel more real because we're losing the simplicity and the clarity of seeing. And so then it can be a downward cycle. We can have sort of a, a mental panic attack, um, which happens in practice. But that's OK. It will end, too. You know, it's impermanent, too. So we all, in little or big ways, have our little freakouts in practice. This is not, you know, mindfulness practice on one level is taught in this country as sort of a, just a way to manage stress. And it's really a useful technique to manage stress. But as a spiritual practice, it's very intense. And, and ultimately, if you take it up seriously, it will slowly become the most important thing in your life because you can't really do it as a secondary or, or you know, a low priority because it's intense. And it requires a real caretaking and devotion. That doesn't mean you can't be a parent or you can't have a job. It just means everything starts to be seen in terms of your practice. So your relationship becomes in terms of your practice, and your job becomes in terms of your practice of waking up. And everything is you know, grist for the mill in that sense. Thanks for sharing your experience. Yeah. Dave. Just to go off what you were just talking about, um, it made me think of my situation right now and how I just started this new job as a designer at an ad agency and how you know, a lot of egos and alcohol kind of surrounds the atmosphere there and how I just feel very separate a lot of the time and um, just really trying to be in my job but not of the culture, how hard that is. Um, noticing, you know, all the stuff that comes up while I'm working and then it's almost like that seductive culture has a momentum and then, yeah. you know, I'm in recovery for, from drugs and alcohol for the past six years and uh, so for me this is like one of the most challenging things I've ever dealt with in this context. So uh, I've just been kind of, like you were saying, repeating certain things like the five precepts and yeah. like the five remembrances and those things kind of break, break deconstruct that atmosphere there because it, you know, it's just so temporary, but when I'm in it, it feels so, like, kind of, like, pulling you in. And yeah. it's, it's uh, you know, I think that's the hardest, kind of what you were saying, is the hardest places to practice are in, are in the world. And I think that's why I've made more of an effort to kind of come back to my foundation, you know, as in sitting practice and connect with uh, what gave me this life in the first place. Yeah. And let's be honest, you know, the Buddha taught that the easiest way to do this practice is to become a monk or a nun, where by design you have no duties and responsibilities. And every day you can't keep food. So every day you just show up in town and you get the food from the lay people and you go off and practice. Because it's not easy to have duties and responsibilities and to be in this world that, you know, our culture, as are all cultures for the most part, it's built on greed and aversion and, you know, and delusion. And um, so we have to have a lot of patience for how challenging it is and a lot of intelligence about surrounding ourselves as much as we can with 
supporting causes, like showing up to Kamagaran on a Sunday night. If you don't have friends who practice, start introducing yourself to people here. Ask, to, hey, you want to go have a cup of tea before next Sunday's group? And get to know some people if you don't have friends that practice, because it really makes a difference. One of the things we do at the center is we encourage a lot of what we call community groups. Sometimes they arise around book groups. Something like we have an educators group. Paul helps run the educators group. So just people who happen to be teachers who are also interested in the practice, and they meet once a month. There's a young adult group called Dharma Friends at the center. But people just need to create supporting causes and conditions that help balance the not such not so supporting causes and conditions in our life, like all the media and you know all of the dysfunction in our families and our job sites, in our own minds. And it's really a question of you know balance. It's like in a sense a war. You know, like what has the momentum? It's the neurotic forces in our mind and around us or the forces of wisdom and you know let's be honest sometimes it, it's it's you know one step forward and three steps back one step forward and three steps back where we really are losing our sense and we should just be honest about that because sometimes that's just how it is there are just all those triggers like a perfect wave and we're getting pulled in and we're being confused by them and we're taking it personally, and we're acting it out. And we're acting it out in ways that people are going to start responding to us in ways that are going to trigger more of our negative patterns. You know, It's like these systems, these patterns, have their own forces. Now, how do you break that? Hating our life isn't the way you break it. Denying that you're cycling down isn't the way to break it. Forgiving yourself. Because what do we do when we forgive ourselves or we have compassion? All of a sudden, we're back in a wholesome state of mind. So that's the amazing thing. There's there's always a way out. And that's the one thread or seed you want to maintain. No matter how dark it appears, your particular life situation, no matter how dark it appears, isn't it always possible to care about your life? And you see how that immediately changes it. You're not in a negative place if you care about being in a negative place, if you forgive yourself, if you understand. So the three wholesome roots that I talked about last week, you know, generosity and love or compassion and clarity. So when we're in a really dark place, we can be clear we're in a really dark place. That's a wholesome state of mind. We can be forgiving and compassionate and tender about being in a really difficult place. And we can be generous about it. We can sort of act out of... Like when we're in a really dark place, we feel really needy. It's like, but try doing something generous when you're in a dark place. It's not easy, of course. But uh, when you do something kind, like pet your cat, or even make yourself a nice bath, it's amazing how that act of kindness, that generous act, is healing. So nothing can stop these these three wholesome roots of wholesome mind states. They're always available. Of course, the unwholesome roots are always available. We can always be irritated by our irritation, 
We can always be angry. We can always be needy and imagine, oh, if I only had this, then I'd be happy. We can always be deluded and distracted and in denial. But we don't want to give up hope because it's there's no way to completely cut ourselves off from wholesome states. Of course, our mind, our negative mind states will tell us that we're totally lost. We've totally screwed up. There's no way out. Right? That's basically the definition of a negative state is this idea that there's nothing we can do to turn this around. And delusion is we believe that state is the, all the truth. And wisdom says, well, that's, that's just a thought that there's nothing I can do. That's just part of this mind state. Yeah. Well, um, as, I, as I age, I'm thinking, I, I know pretty equal population density now in terms of young people versus older people. You know, people in their 20s and 30s versus in their 50s, 60s, 70s. And it seems like the 70 people are calmer and more balanced, and they're not Zen students. They're just naturally aged, and their life experiences have taught them these lessons that you're just talking about. Whereas young people, regardless of their Zen and regardless of the hard work, they still have, you know, the fire in the belly and the and the monkey mind and, and all this crazy stuff going on in their world. And and I kind of wonder if maybe the that fire in the belly and that monkey mind has a purpose. It might be delusional, but yeah, it might be some sort of higher path to something that might lead to a well-balanced later adult. Uh, do you have anything to say about the aging process and how life lessons will give us these lessons? Well, I think, I think there is, you know, uh, this path is a path of common sense, and people who aren't completely overwhelmed by life will have insight whether they formally practice or not. People who aren't completely overwhelmed by life. So um, there's a caveat there. But a lot of what you might be describing is that people wear themselves out, too. Life wears them out. And they, it may appear that they're not struggling, but they may be despondent, they may be depressed, they may be um, whatever. You know, so just because people aren't don't have fire in the belly doesn't mean they have something wholesome in their belly. And a lot of what we see in young people, if we remember, is greed, anger, and delusion. And it's just part of the survival instinct as a species, you know, that agitation that we feel. It kind of, you know, helps us find mates and helps us compete and helps us do all kinds of things that <coughs> have to do with you know, the perpetuation of the species. So I don't know if it's necessarily wisdom. And, um, but it's not to say that there, those qualities can be transmuted. Like, there's something in anger that when it's transmuted with awareness, it becomes a kind of discriminating wisdom. And there's something in greed when it gets transmuted with awareness that becomes uh, the capacity to appreciate what's beautiful. And there's something in delusion, even delusion, that when it gets, when you really see delusion, really understand it, you see that there's something in it that leads to equanimity. So there, everything, there's, you know, in the end, all of these unwholesome states of mind are fundamentally unstable. But it's because we never see them that they perpetuate themselves, they replicate themselves. But it doesn't take much awareness before 
things clean up themselves in a, in a sense. We have to leave it here. It's uh, 8.30. But thanks, everyone, for your comments. And let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. So it's nice just to appreciate being here. Appreciate these simple, ancient teachings that have been passed down generation by generation. And why not be inspired to cultivate mindfulness and this interest in the mind states as a way of taking care of ourselves and a way of taking care of all beings, cultivating wisdom and peace and compassion in our lives, our actions and thoughts to be a cause for peace in the world. So may this be so. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.